If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, please go ahead and turn with me to the book of Psalms. We're going to take a little bit of a break from, just one week break from 2 Samuel. Uh, we just finished chapter 22. In the, course of the, uh, in the course of preaching through 2 Samuel 22, I was able to have a conversation with, uh, uh, with one of you after service, and somebody asked me after preaching through David's, uh, all of David's praise for what God had done for him, the question became, what happens if God doesn't do what he said or what David said he would do in 2 Samuel? And thankfully, the answer to that is one of among many psalms. Um, and so I'm going to ask you, and that's why I turn, have you turn to Psalm 88. Um, and we're going to talk about when it seems as if God is silent and doesn't answer in the way that we had been praying and thinking and hoping that he would. So we are going to look at Psalm chapter 88, or Psalm 88 this morning. Psalm 88. And if you are physically able to do so, I am going to ask that you would stand as we honor the ring of his word in verses 1 through 18, all 18 verses. We'll read these together. So Psalm 88, hear the word of the Lord given to you and I this morning, please. Psalm chapter 88. O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with them that go down into the pit. I am as a man that has no strength, free among the dead, or literally adrift or forsaken among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave whom you remember no more, and they are cut off from your hand. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the deeps or in the depths. Your wrath lies hard or heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all of your waves, Selah. You have put away my acquaintances from me. You have made me an abomination, or uh, you have made me a disgusting thing or repulsive to them. I am shut up and cannot come forth, or I cannot get out. My eye mourns or is wasting by reason of affliction, Lord, I have called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hands to you. Will you show wonders to the dead or for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Selah. Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in destruction or literally in the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But to you have I cried, O Lord, and in the morning shall my prayer prevent you or come before you lord why cast why do you cast off my soul and why do you hide your face from me i am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up while i suffer your terrors i am distracted literally distraught your fierce wrath goes over me or has gone over me your terrors have cut me off they came round about me daily like water. They compassed me about altogether. They literally, they all, they, 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 uh, like a flood, they engulfed me. Lover and friend have you put far from me, and my acquaintance into darkness, or literally, my friend is the dark. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would help us as we look at this text. That you help us to be reminded that. Um, you call us to pray and you do promise to never leave us or forsake us, that you promise to answer us when we cry and call to you. But God, at times your prayer or the answer to your prayer may look quite differently than what we have prayed for. 
And so we ask for your grace as we look at this text, and we pray for your spirit to guide us and to instruct us through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We live in a world that is filled with noise. Um, There is lots and lots of noise in the world. We can seem like it's hard to escape it. Everywhere you go, every, everywhere you look, there is noise and lots of it. Everything from cell phones to televisions to all kinds of other distractions, cars and, and, and the rest. And so for us, silence can seem like a strange thing at times. And it's not something that I, I think we are always necessarily good at, at liking or desiring or even practicing of just being silent. And just listening to the Lord's word as he speaks to us through his written word. And however, when we do experience silence, while it may be strange to us, the silence of God is not strange. The silence of God is quite terrifying. When it appears that God does not answer us when we would like for him to have answered us or how we would like for him to have answered us, God's silence can be quite terrifying. However, in saying that, my brothers and sisters, I want you to see and I want to draw your attention in this psalm to what you and I are to be reminded of. And that is that while we live in a world that's not only filled with noise, but it's also filled with great emotion and people are people love to emote or literally to express emotion instead of actually logically thinking through things, right? We can't be led by our emotions. We can't be led by what we feel. We can't become distracted from what God has revealed to us in his word because I just feel differently than what he has revealed to us. In other words, truth must always guide us and not our feelings, We often pursue, though, we're told to often pursue in accordance with our feelings, aren't we? And any number of things, we want to feel powerful, we want to feel feel like we matter, we want to feel like we we want to indulge in pleasure, Uh, we want to change laws because it feels right, we change, even some people change their very identity based upon their feelings instead of their chromosomes. And so our feelings become authority that we turn to and we trust in, and yet God's word cannot be clearer. We do not base anything upon our feelings. We are to base everything because it is such a weak foundation. Our feelings are such a weak foundation. We base everything upon the word of God. We base everything upon Christ and his revealed word to us. And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to examine four truths from our text when God is silent or you, I could have also entitled this sermon, The Darkness of God. So what is, what is it that we are to learn? What is it that we are to learn when God is silent or God's darkness encompasses us? Well, the psalmist does actually tell us what we are to do. The first and foremost thing that we are to do is first in verses 1 and 2. What, is, what does the psalmist say? O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Now, I don't mean to make you uh, feel bad, but this is the best that it's going to get for the rest of the 16 verses that's here. This is the best we are going to get for the next 16 verses as we read this text. David's, or the, I'm sorry, Heman's cry 
to, to the Lord. O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. And so what are we to do when the darkness of God surrounds us and encompasses us? What are we to do when God is silent? Well, the first thing we are to do is we are to continue to cry to the Lord. Continue to cry to the Lord. And so you see that Heman is, is, is writing here, right? One of the sons of Korah is being written at this point. One of, the, one of the sons of Korah is writing one of the many psalms that they also wrote between David and the sons of Korah. They make up the bulk of the book of Psalms. But we hear the cry of a man that is in complete and utter distress. And he addresses his God. And notice what he says here in addressing his God. Notice what he says. Notice where his hope is despite everything else that he's going to say from this point forward. Notice who he's addressing and how he's addressing him. And the names that he uses in addressing the one that he is going to cry and he is crying out to and calling to. The first thing he does in crying out to God is, is reminding God and himself of his covenant faithfulness and loyalty. You notice that he uses the name, O Lord, right? In verse, I'm sorry, in verse 8, he says, yes, O Lord God. He says this is, he's using God's covenant and by using the name God, G-O-D, it is the name Elohim. He is using God's covenant name, O Yahweh Elohim, O Lord God of my salvation, Yahweh being God's covenant name, reminding God that he is, he has entered into a covenant with him and God has entered into, he has entered into a covenant with God and God with him. And God is, he is basing all of these prayers and all of these requests and all of these pleadings based upon one thing and one thing only. Who God is. Who God is. And God lists for him his covenant name or he lists for God reminding him of his covenant loyalty the same God who entered into a covenant with Israel through, the, through Abraham and Moses is the same God that he now cries to. God, you have been faithful. You have been faithful, and yet here I am, and I don't hear of your faithfulness. But he goes on and he says, O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried day and night to you. And so he also is not only reminding himself as he's crying to God, but he's also offering himself an instruction from where? From his feelings? No, most certainly not. We're going to have 16 verses of feelings here in just a moment. What is he saying? What is he doing? He is basing all of this because of who God is and his covenant loyalty to him and to Israel. He then reminds him of all of his covenant works and his faithfulness, right? Because in saying, O Lord God of my salvation, what is he saying? He's saying, you are the God that has covenanted with me and with Israel and I with you and Israel with you. You are the God who is our creator, Elohim, right? The creator God, the God who creates. And you are also the God who saves us. You are the God of our salvation. You are the redeemer. You are the one who has sought us out and has bought us for your own glory's sake. And so he is not only reminding himself and God of God's covenant, but he's also instructing himself in his own heart in in God's covenant work and God's covenant faithfulness for him and for Israel. And so as he opens and cries to the Lord, he doesn't do so based upon feelings. He doesn't do so based upon anything other than the fact that who God is and the truth of what God has revealed to Israel that he is like. 
And yet, in all of this, what does he say? He doesn't water down his feelings. He doesn't go to the Lord and say, you know, God, I just really, I'm just not feeling it today. What does he say? Listen to the cry of Heman as he cries out to the Lord when he says, I have cried day and night before you. So long before this psalm is written, Heman has been crying and pleading and beseeching and praying and seeking God's face. And yet God has met him with stone-cold silence. With straight darkness, God has met him. Nothing, nothing. The heavens seem as iron to the psalmist at this point. The heavens seem as if God has set his face against the psalmist. And yet he still cries to the Lord. He still cries to the God of his of, his, of the covenant who is loyal and faithful and has proven that. And he even requests in Psalm 88 verse 2, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear or listen intently to my cry. It's literally what he's saying is God, he's not just saying hear what I'm saying. He's saying, God, put your ear down close to my mouth and literally listen intently and carefully to what I'm saying. That's the idea that's being presented here. Because the psalmist does not feel as if God has heard him. And really, Psalm 88 does remind us of another man, doesn't it? As you read Psalm 88, I think Job could have written this psalm. I think think Job could have literally written every word of this, particularly as he was in the midst of his trials and tribulations and his troubles. But it's not Job that's now writing this. This is Heman, one of the sons of Korah, one of the, one of the, one of the leaders of Israel's worship, who is now leading God's people. And by the way, this would have been sung in their worship. Right? The Psalms weren't just nice things. Like we think of Psalms probably today as just things that we read because it's in our Bibles, but this would have been sung. By the nation of Israel, the covenant people of God would have sung this together in their worship. They would have, the, 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 the worship leaders would have led them into the singing of this psalm. And so he is appealing for divine audience with God. But there's a second truth here that I think we need to see, and that is the distress that is felt, the distress that is felt. And maybe it would be right to say the distresses that are felt, the, the, the feelings of, of great distress that comes upon, uh, that comes upon the, 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 uh, the writer here of, in Psalm 88, Heman, the son of Kor- one of the sons of Korah. And listen to the, listen in verses 3 through 9, listen to, and, and then we'll back up and we'll talk about each one. But listen, just listen for a moment to all of the distresses that are listed here. He says in verse 3 that his difficulties are intensified. He says that he is facing the imminence of death in verse 3 and 4. He says he is physically exhausted. His friends have forsaken him in verse 5. He is forgotten by God in verse 5. He is imprisoned in the darkness in verse 6. He is suffering from the wrath of Almighty God. He's suffering the the wrath of Almighty God in 7 through 9. So these these are serious distresses. One of the greatest, one of the one of our hymn writers in, in our psalm book was a man by the name of William Cooper. 
spelled C-O-W, right? But Cooper, William Cooper. William Cooper was a man who was given to great distress, and yet he wrote some of the greatest hymns that we could ever sing. William Cooper was a, was a man that was given, as a matter of fact, he spent five years suffering from, some, from severe depression. He was sent to an insane asylum for five years, and yet he came after five years and wrote one of the most beautiful parts uh, of one of the hymns which goes and talks about God's smiling face being hidden by the dark clouds of providence. Brothers and sisters, there will be times when we feel the weight of the distresses of life in our lives. And at times, though we wish that God would give us immediate relief, we may be like William Cooper who spent five years continually crying to the Lord, the God of heaven, saying, God, where are you? God, why have you not answered me? God, will you not hear me? God, will you not answer my prayer and my cry? Why have you left me here? And so let's talk about each one of these distresses that this man, Heman, and the sons of Korah felt. In verse 3, he says this in Psalm 88, For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave, or to, to Sheol, right? to, to the grave. That's where he says that he is feeling. His, his, he, his, his, his grief has grown to such a point that he literally says, I am facing death in the eye. That's how intense my struggle is, is what he is saying. His intensified difficulties cannot be made light of. Right? He says that he has, he has struggled and struggled and struggled and struggled to the point that death now, death now seems like a friend. And then in verse 4, he does talk about the imminence of this death. He sort of builds upon this idea of facing death in the eye when he talks about, I am accounted with them that go down <clears throat> to the pit, Right? Uh, literally, I, I'm going down with those who are dying. I am as a man that has no strength. And don't, don't, don't miss this. This is a play on words, right? This is a play on words. Notice what the psalmist says. I am as a man. And the idea here in the Hebrew is that I am a strong man. That's the understanding there. I am a strong man that has no strength. Well, that sounds, sounds strange, right? A strong man who has no strength? How can you be a strong man if you have no strength? And that's Heman's point. I have been taken, all of my strength has been taken from me. And as a result, I draw near to dying. I stare death in the face. I'm accounted with those that are dying, right? Is what he says. I am, I am like those who are going down into the pit. And the pit, the idea here can be a couple of different things. Uh, in this context, it just literally means I'm going down into the grave or to, to destruction, either, either one. Not, not hell, but, but just I, I'm, my life is being destroyed, right? My life is being utterly taken from me and I am being destroyed because you don't answer me, God. And so he says, I, 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 I am facing the great tumults of life and life is, has been, the, the happiness and the joy of life has just been taken from me and there is nothing but death and darkness that surround me. Sounds like a great and happy song, doesn't it? And then he goes on. Then he goes on in verse 4. 
when he says that he's playing again off these words that, that this, this man that, that has no strength, this idea of, of, of absolute, not, but, but not just physical exhaustion, right? This is not a man that's just suffering from physical exhaustion, although it has certainly affected his physical life. It also has sapped him of all of his spiritual and emotional, and every part of him has been affected by this. And this is truly why, this is truly why depression can be so very dangerous. Depression can make us face this truth and this reality without seeming to give us any hope. And it's why it's important for us to be guided and, and guarded by the word and to, to put our hope in the word, even when at times, I've heard it said at times, even, even when all we can say is help, Lord, that's prayer. Even when all we can say is help, Lord, that's still a prayer. And we're still looking to the Lord for our help. Because, brothers and sisters, there will be times in our lives when, when it seems as if God is, that, that we have poured out all of our prayers and all of our tears and all of our hearts before the Lord. And the only thing that we can do is open our mouth and just say, help. Help. But the man goes on. In verse 5, he says, I am free, right? Or I am, uh, I am adrift, or I am, uh, I am forsaken among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and you cut off from your hand, right? So he says, I'm forsaken by my friends, right? I'm forsaken by my friends because I'm like a dead man. They don't consider me a friend. Literally, like, they, 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 they have forsaken my life, right? Job would certainly know a lot about this, wouldn't he? He had friends around him, and I'm quite sure at times he wished, I wish you guys would just go home. But he knows and understands what it means to be forsaken by his friends, he is as a dead man walking, forsaken by his friend, forsaken to the grave is what he says here in verse 5. I'm adrift among the dead. I'm free among the dead. I'm drifting. I'm, I'm, I'm just literally, I, I'm, I'm, I'm walking among the dead and that's all I can do. And so my friends have forsaken me. And if that wasn't bad enough, then he comes back in verse 5 and he says what? Whom you remember no more. Now, who's the you? He's not talking about his friends at this point. He's already referenced them. Who is the you? Well, the you is the Lord. He said, I'm forsaken even by you. You remember me no more. And they are, and because I am with them, I am cut off from your hand. And so the psalmist says, I am forsaken by you to the grave. I am forsaken by you and cut off from your blessings. I'm forsaken from your mercies. I'm forsaken from all that you have given to me previously. God does not remember him. God has cut off his care from him. Is literally what he's saying. God, you have stopped even caring for me. You have stopped even loving me. You have stopped even watching over me and protecting me. And as a result, then, and we see the descent into the darkness, don't we? Because in verse 6, he says, he says that he is imprisoned in darkness. That's the next trial that he says here in verse 6. You're, uh, I'm sorry, you have laid me in the lowest pit in darkness, in the deeps or literally in the depths. You have put me, God. And, and listen, he is saying here, right? Not, notice what he's saying. He says, I am accounted with them that go down to the pit 
Verse 4, I am as a man that has no strength, free or adrift or, or forsaken among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, whom you, so he turns from I to you, remember me no more, and you cut me off from your hand, and you have laid me in the lowest pit, and as a result, I now walk in the depths of darkness. That's what he says. You have placed me here, God. You have done this. You are my afflictor. You are the one that has afflicted me. I I am tasting of your wrath, O God. And that's what he says here, not only imprisoned in the dark, and we'll come back to darkness here in just a moment because darkness is going to play a huge part here. He says, but I am also suffering from your wrath as a result. Because you have done this, God, because you have placed me here. Listen to what he says in verse 7, your wrath lies hard upon me or, or is heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. You have put away my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up and I cannot come forth. So don't misunderstand what's going on here and what's being said here. He is first and foremost saying, God, your wrath clings to me. It is clinging to me. And then he says, God, I am suffering because your wrath clings to me. But notice what he says here. He talks about waves crashing, right? Or with, with all of your waves. And the psalmist is using intentional waves, right? We, when we think of waves, probably most of us think of going to the beach. And there on a nice sandy beach, we think about those nice rolling waves that come into, come into the beach. And it's just like, oh, the, you close your eyes and you hear the seagulls and, and you hear the waves crashing. If you get out early enough, you know, there's nobody really around. And so you can just hear the beauty and the sound of that. That's not the type of waves he's talking about here. Right? Because there's another type of wave, isn't there? And that's the type of wave that crashes against the rocks. Not the beach, but the cliffs. And the idea here in the Hebrew is that God's crushing, destroying waves are literally just crashing him into the cliffs of destruction over and over and over and over until he is completely destroyed. He says, God, you have crushed me and are crushing me by the waves of your affliction. And because your wrath is upon me, there is nobody that wants to be my friend. And as a result, in verse 9, the first part, he says, My eye mourns or is wasting. That's the the what the idea in the Hebrew is, is that, that his eye is literally, he is so filled with tears, he is so setting his eyes upon the Lord that his eyes have literally wasted away in his socket while he is waiting for God to come and to answer him. My eye, it mourns, my eye is wasting. Why? Because of affliction. Why? Because I have called upon you daily. And I've stretched out my hands to you, and there's nothing. There's nothing. And yet in the midst of all of this, don't miss that there's a progression. 
because he starts off with the firm foundation of who God is and of what's going on, or of, of, of what he has done and the faithfulness of God despite everything he's done, and yet he's very honest, right? He's very honest with God. It always kills me when people are like, you know, now don't tell God what you're actually feeling. Like, like does God not know what I'm feeling? Right? And the psalmist Heman here is very, very open with God. He's very open with God. Now, he's not raging against God, but he is very open and very honest with God. And you can't read, we can't read this without feeling the weight of the darkness that has gripped his heart. We can't read this psalm without feeling the weight. He says, I am afflicted and lamenting. But then he moves. And I, like I said, I wish I could say he moves into, okay, oh man, like, like most of the other Psalms, it's like, you know, you start off with a praise to God and then there's like this whole, big, this, this whole big confession of God about what's feeling. And at the very end, it's like, shoo, but thank you, God, you brought me out of all of this. Yeah, no. He doesn't say, okay, God, now I know you're going to rescue me. He says, no. I don't know what you're doing. Because here's a, here's a third reality. Verses 9b through 12, the second part of verse 9 through 12, it says, God, I've got more questions than answers at this point in time. I have more questions than answers. He says in verse 9, I have a lot of questions about your silence. Why are you silent? God, I have questions about your works in verses 10 and 12. And he even asks, will you show wonders to the dead? Will you show wonders in the dark? And then he says, I've got questions about your worship. Shall the dead praise you? Shall, the dead, shall, shall uh, God's righteousness be remembered in the land of forgetfulness? Now, the thing that we have to keep in mind here is, psalmist is leading God's people, God's covenant people in worship. What could you not do if you had touched a dead body? What could you not do? if you had been exposed to a loved one, even a loved one that had died? What could you not do? You could not enter into the worship of the Lord for a point in time because you had to be cleansed. There was ceremonial cleansing that had to take place. There was a ceremonial cleansing that needed and purifying that needed to take place. And so the psalmist here is saying, God, God, someone who is dead cannot come and worship you. Someone who is dead cannot remember your righteousness and declare it. And the psalmist is using these questions, right? The psalmist is using these questions and asking these questions. Lord, how can you be acknowledged and praised by those who are dead? Because remember, unlike us, we don't have the... the uh, um, in, in, for the Christian, we have churches that, have, that are surrounded by graves, Right? But for the nation of Israel, the graves were all outside of Jerusalem, right? You didn't have graves inside Jerusalem because that's symbolically where God dwelt because God dwelt upon his, in his temple or his tabernacle at this time, the temple. God's presence was in the temple. God's city was Jerusalem. You didn't bury dead things in the city. You buried them outside where God's presence wasn't. And he's saying, God, you have cast me outside of your presence. You have cast me outside of your dwelling places. You have cast me outside of the place where you dwell. And no one can proclaim your greatness there. 
And so he's using this as a, as a symbol, right? Because Israel certainly, because David and the Israelites certainly had an idea of resurrection, certainly understood the, the idea of the hope of heaven. They, they certainly had all of these, these things. They, they grasped these things. So David isn't saying, you know, like, like, some, like somebody that has given up everything. Well, there's no point to anything, right? He hasn't become a nihilist. He hasn't become someone who's like, oh, there's no point to anything anymore. This is all we've got. But David is saying, God, how can those that you have ultimately cast off praise you? How can those that you have utterly forsaken praise you? How can those who worship you who you do not even allow into your presence? And then in verse 11, he says, I've got a question about your love and I have no answer. Because God, how can, in verse 11, he says, how can, how can your faithful has said, your faithful love, and your faithfulness, how can it be verbally praised in the realm of the dead? How can that be a reality? And truthfully, there will be times in our lives, my brothers and sisters, when we have more questions than answers. We need to be okay. I'm, I'm not saying it's easy, but we need to be okay when we do have more questions than answers. Why? Because all of this has to go back to where we started. Oh, Lord God, O oh Lord, who is faithful in covenant and my creator, the one that I look to and long for, my hope and my joy, my crown, the one who has proven himself to be faithful over and over and over again. And then he goes from asking the questions that he has no answers to, and he says, well, the as if this is not all enough, in verses 13 through 18, he says, there's great intensity in my suffering. We say, well, I mean, you've already talked about a lot. But notice how the psalm ends in verse 18. Lover, or literally loved one and friend, you have put far from me and my acquaintance into darkness. The Hebrew literally reads here, and darkness is my friend. literally what he says and darkness is my friend the intensity of his suffering continues on and he says I have agonized to you O God why do you reject me yes in verse 14 why have you hidden from me again more more questionings on more questions for God and then he says because God ultimately you're the one in verses 15 through 18 he says you are the one who afflicted me I have been afflicted in verse 15. I have been suffering deeply in verse 15. I have been destroyed by, by you painfully in verse 16. I have been engulfed completely by your crashing waves and judgment. And I have been isolated entirely in verse 18, so much so that the only friend that I have is darkness. I wonder if you can feel that this morning. I wonder if you feel the weight that at times that all it feels like we have around us and God is left with us is darkness. Now, having said all of that, I will say this. This is the darkest psalm in the entire book of Psalms. As a matter of fact, it is the darkest chapter in all of Scripture outside of the crucifixion of Christ. And in the New Testament, where we're just simply told that Jesus was crucified. 
It is the darkest psalm. But even darker than that, because we always find in the very next chapter, Jesus' resurrection. Here, the psalmist just says, I don't have any hope, and darkness is my friend, God. So how do we make sense of this? Right? How, how is it that we don't leave out of here saying, oh my goodness, I wasn't depressed going in, but now all the preacher preached, and I most certainly, I don't know that I feel very well today. Well, how do we make sense of this? How do, we, how, do we, how do we see hope in the midst of all of this? Well, first and foremost, I would ultimately remind you of the psalmist's hope in Psalm 88, which started in verse 1. O Lord God of my salvation, that God is our creator, he is our redeemer, he is the one who has faithfully covenanted with us in Christ, He is the one who, upon whom and in whom we have our hope, not our circumstances. But even more than that, I want to show you Jesus in this text. You say, I don't think Jesus is anywhere in this text. Oh, yes, he is. Well, let me show you what I mean. Jesus knows the darkness of God. As Jesus die, lay, as Jesus was hanging, dying upon the cross, darkness covered all of the land for three hours, we're told in Matthew 27, 45. And at the death of Jesus, the veil in the temple was literally ripped, torn in half in Matthew 27, 51. Jesus even cried out in abandonment, My God, my God, why have you? forsaken me in Matthew 27 46 in this moment as Jesus is hanging on the cross there is nothing attractive about him Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53 2 right for he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 21 and this is the mystery of the redeeming sacrifice of Christ upon the cross where the wrath of God and the love of God and the mercy of God meet and kiss in a moment in time. Psalm 88 is ultimately the anticipation of that. Of that redeeming moment. Where darkness and death and wrath is fully poured out And the love and mercy of God are poured out and they are reconciled in a moment. Second of all, Jesus is the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. I didn't choose Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 this morning without purpose. He is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the the author and finisher, the captain, if you will, of our salvation. And the only words of hope in this psalm are here, right? The only hope in the midst of the black despair is here in this moment in time. And yet we know that Jesus full well set his face to Jerusalem. And he has become the Lord, 
the God of our salvation. His, the Father's will was done through the Son's activity. He is the Lord God of my salvation, of your salvation, of our salvation, if we have truly trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. He is the Lord, the God of my salvation. What the Lord Jesus knew in the light, he held on to in the darkness as the Father turned his face away. Jesus knows the pit. It's interesting that throughout the psalm here, there are several words used to talk about the, the realm of the, of the dead. He talks about um, the, the Hebrew word for it, we would say grave or, or literally Sheol, right? The place, the holding places of the dead, right? Or Hades. But he also uses another word, right? The word bore for pit. And there is kibar or a burial chamber he speaks of in verse 5. He talks about the deeps in verse 6, also associated with Sheol. He also uses the, a very similar word for what we will find in Revelation when he talks about that uh, uh, Abaddon or Abaddon is released, destruction. And the cry here is rhetorical, of despair, with the implied answer of no one will hear in the land of forgetfulness. But yet, even here, God answered this prayer, didn't he? You say, well, how did Jesus answer this prayer? Well, Jesus, we're told in Ephesians 4, 9, died. He entered into the grave. He entered, as we're told in Ephesians 4, 9, into the lower parts of the earth. And he preached, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19, he preached to the spirits who had been disobedient at the time of Noah. And God ultimately did not abandon the soul of our Savior to the, to the grave, to Sheol. And so when Jesus came back from the dead, the righteous came back with him and he led captivity captive, as we're told in Ephesians 4.8. And he is the captain of our salvation. Jesus is also the atoning sacrifice. Because Jesus knew Psalm 88 well, he experienced the full wrath of Almighty God and it was fully poured out upon him, and he drank to the dregs, to the very bottom of the cup of God's wrath. And the one thing the psalmist and Jesus here both did was they didn't experience it as they didn't experience this as some kind of rhetorical, theological pie in the sky, maybe so's. But they knew the truths equated with this psalm and the theological truth that they held on to, the biblical truth that they held on to, they continued to cling to. Because Jesus actually cried out in despair in the garden. He cried out in despair upon the cross. And he cried out so that, the, that in his despair, he might reconcile his people to the Father. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, to know that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And he has committed to us the word that is his people, the word of, his, the word of reconciliation. And Jesus knew, and Jesus experienced the wrath that the psalmist talks about in verse 7 here, the, your wrath lies hard on me or lies heavy upon me. 
I suffer your terrors in verse 15. Your fierce wrath goes over me in verse 16. And darkness is my friend in verse 18. Jesus experienced this. Why? All for those who would believe in him. For us who are his people, he experienced this. So that anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. Lastly, let me say this. Jesus is here because despite it all, he is a true friend and savior. In John 15, 15, Jesus calls us along with his disciples, his friends. And yet Jesus felt the abandonment by his disciples very clearly. In Luke twenty two sixty one, we're told that everyone abandoned him. And it is a significant part of this lament. God has put away his every acquaintance from him in verse 8 of Psalm 88. God has made him an abomination to those that were his friends in verse 8. His loved ones and his friends and acquaintances have all been removed from him in verse 18. They have gone into blackness and darkness. And what was it all for? Why did the psalm have to end this way? So that we would not end that way. Why did this psalm end this way? So that you and I, through the Lord Jesus Christ, could taste the hope and the life and the love that is ours in Christ. He died in shame that we might be received into glory. He died without a people that he might make a people who were not his people his people. He died friendless that we might have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And so there is a lot of darkness in this psalm. And in the Psalter as well. There's a lot of psalms here. Not as dark as this one, but certainly dark. And as dark as this psalm is, God has given us this psalm to remind us that Scripture that the scripture that he and the scripture empathize, they sympathize with us. And when the deepest imaginable personal distresses overwhelm us, God has not forgotten us. And so we can in hope turn to him and look to him because he is the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that is in Christ. We thank you for the truth that we have heard this morning that ultimately points us to Christ in Psalm 88, that ultimately you, Lord Jesus, tasted every bit of this so that we, who are the enemies of God, would be made the sons and daughters of the King. We thank you for this truth. May you help us to turn to Christ, to look to Christ, to honor you, we pray in Jesus' name.